Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Bitcoin has declined 75% since its peak. Danny Masters joining us now, chair of CoinShares Group, which oversees uh, more than a billion dollars in crypto assets from London. Danny, thank you so much for being with us. Are we watching the Bitcoin bubble burst right now, and is this just a fad that has ended? Hi, Lisa. Great to be with you again. Um, well, it's certainly been a challenging week uh, in the Bitcoin space and you know, a market that's had an enormous excursion over the last few years from you know, very low numbers to very high numbers um, certainly has been taking um, some heat in the in the last uh, few sessions and ironically when sort of global markets started to become more volatile uh, a month or so ago bitcoin remained stable um for a period of time uh, and then um seems to have succumbed to um not just its unique internal but also you know a more global macro um uh, sense of pressure um the 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 bears in bitcoin have definitely scored a win uh, in this phase um, there is a lot of um, seems to be a lot of celebration amongst the sort of Nouriel Rabinis and Dan Crums of the world uh, that finally their price predictions seem to be coming right after a number of years. Um, but when you really put it in perspective, I mean this this last couple of weeks alone, I and mean, we've seen oil go from seventy five to fifty three dollars, and we've seen Bitcoin go from sixty seven sixty eight to you know forty five. $4,600. You know, there are some big moves out there in other commodities, too. Um, for some reason, uh, the mood seems to be a little bit more negative in Bitcoin, as you sort of correctly state, say, you know, with some sort of bubble-bursting phenomena rather than the sort of inherent volatility we have in the market. Uh, as a Bitcoin practitioner, and like many others who've been around for a while, uh, one tries not to get too excited when it goes up uh, or too disappointed when it goes down. So, you know, I'm calling this just a very volatile period, not a bursting. Danny, can you just give people a little background on coin shares? Because there are a couple different pieces to the coin shares story. Sure. One, for example, you own XBT. This is the uh, exchange traded product in Europe that tracks the value of Bitcoin. That's correct. Yeah, we're uh, an asset management company in the cryptocurrency space. Um, so we provide active products like XBT Provider. Uh, private strategies like CoinShares Fund One, and even third-party strategies um, like a fund of funds that we uh, that we market for other people. Um, we provide research, um, we provide execution, custody, and you know we hold ourselves out to be an emerging black rock type of organization uh, where customers can come for portfolio structuring, performance measurement, execution, custody, and so on. All right. So, Danny, given that sort of bird's eye view on the market and the interest from institutions and others for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, are you seeing a material decline in interest as the price goes down? Um, I, I think that the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crypto assets, you know, are prices. And these you know, prices garner by far uh, the largest amount of attention. Um, last time, you know, we all sat together in New York, we talked about the emergence of the security token regime. You know, that continues to build a pace, and, you know, more security tokens are coming to market. Those security tokens are beginning to, you know, g gather their sort of smart contracting ability, and we will see 
the end of this year or the first quarter of next year. Um, some new use cases for crypto uh, and using these security tokens um, broadly for you know private assets and, and hard assets. So you know the the infrastructure development that's going on in crypto assets goes on regardless, and I think you know prices tend to be you know up and down. When I look at the names of companies coming into the crypto space, you're familiar with Fidelity's investment we talked last time, or Activity with Nomura, um, the ICE market coming on stream now towards the end of the year, early next year with their Bitcoin futures contract. IBM are now in the mix as well. Um, you know, you're seeing a number of you know large companies coming to the market that weren't there before. You know, is this price decline you know switching off those plans? Not that I can see. Do you uh, have a view towards? pegging digital tokens to the value of the U.S. dollar because some cryptocurrency trading platforms like Coinbase, they've joined this consortium that is designed to peg the digital tokens to the, to the greenback. It's an interesting development. Um, certainly, there is demand for that digital dollar. Um, We've seen Paxos uh, develop, Gemini develop, and there are some other uh, earlier adopters with perhaps lower brand names, lesser brand names in the space. The primary use for these so-called stable coins is to switch from you know, volatile crypto assets into stable dollars while remaining within this electronic environment, um, digital environment. So that's quite appealing. What has come before is the Tether coin, which is sort of an unregulated outside the banking system um, dollar that has been widely adopted, probably tune of two or three billion dollars as a placeholder for, for other digital assets and a way to exchange uh, value amongst and between different venues electronically without going through the banking system. But Ted has been plagued by you know, lack of transparency and, and some, of the, some of the participants uh, not being of the highest caliber. So the new coins that have come in are much higher caliber. They're fully in light of New York Department of Financial Services. Um, the, the exchanges on which they're trading are typically now sort of fairly widely regulated uh, and, and based in the United States. And therefore, they're more legitimate. The, the trouble with the new dollar coins is they're open to interdiction by any regulator that I believe, you know, chooses to do so. Right, so you've got, you've got more, more certainty, but more interdiction. Thanks very much for being with us. Very illuminating. Danny Masters, chairman of CoinShares Group. He's got over a billion dollars worth of crypto assets under management joining us from London. Bitcoin up about 4% today. This is Bloomberg. <music> We have been talking a lot this week about the weakness that we've seen in the credit markets. High-yield bonds just suffered their worst month since late 2015. Yields climbing to the highest since 2016, similar for investment-grade credit. But is this a buying opportunity? And joining us now to discuss, Ken Monahan, a Mundi pioneer, co-director of High Yield, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Ken, wonderful to see you. So are you out there buying, or do you think that this is the beginning of a more protracted sell-off? Um, I'd say at this stage, Lisa, we're nibbling at the edges rather than buying in a big way. Um, it's clear that the high-yield marketplace has uh, widened out significantly in terms of spreads. And in terms of returns, we've been flirting with 0% all year long. So uh, we're now a little underwater. Go back 30 days ago, we were a little above water. Uh, who knows where we'll end the year, but it's not going to be a, sig a big year in terms of returns, that's for sure. We are, I think, though, having uh, said that, setting ourselves up for uh, potential for an attractive 2019. Do you buy for capital gains or do you buy for the coupon? 
you know, you got to buy for total return. If you buy for uh, coupon alone, uh, I think you're setting yourself up for, for trouble. I always tell my analysts that the worst way to achieve a 7% return is to buy a 7% coupon bond. you got to buy either something that's going to move up in credit quality, or you can even buy something that's going to move down in credit quality or down in price, but where you're going to be very self-assured of what your coupon income is. So having said that, when you take a look just as an example at the ETF that many people track to look at high-yield performance, HYG, the iShares iBox, it's down, as you said, three-tenths of a percent so far this year. So is that the incentive to buy it because it's down, or do you wait until credit quality gets really bad and then go looking? Well, there clearly are investors that want to buy at the bottom in the high-yield marketplace. So they bought in 2009. They bought in 2003, coming out of a recession. Having said that, I don't think that's what you need to do to be successful in high-yield. Interestingly, if you look at the risk-adjusted return, so you plot risk on one side and return on the other, and you use volatility as a proxy for risk, and you look at the high-yield market returns over three, five, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, you consistently see the same thing, that the high-yield marketplace achieves an above-average risk-adjusted return, meaning it's above the plot line that you would run through all the other asset classes. And I think that's really what makes it attractive. It does generate an attractive return over a long period of time. And I think if you think of the high-yield investing kind of on a three- to five-year horizon rather than a one- to two, that's the better way of, uh, of approaching it. Okay, so Ken, you said that you're nibbling at the edges. What are you nibbling on? Well, we're selectively looking at some things, for example, in Europe, because Europe is badly beaten up as the United States has been. Europe's even been worse. Uh, and we're beginning to look at some things in emerging markets as well, because some emerging market corporate debt has been hit hard also. Which countries? Oh, well, you know, there's some attractive things going on in some of the Latin American countries where they're clearly under some pressure. Argentina would be a very good example of that. But we think that there's some companies that are there that have longer term possibilities of success. I just want to go back to the comparison because I want to try to understand this. For example, I looked at the performance of HYG, just right. to use that, um, from all of 2013 year to date today. Right. right up 23%. Right. Okay. If I look at the S&P 500, we're up 87%. Right. So I'm trying to understand the contradiction. Well, I, I think one thing you need to keep in mind is that if you look at the high yield marketplace and you look at the ETFs in particular, they have not had a great return over a long period of time. They have underperformed the broader indices in the high-yield market. So you want more active management. I think you then. do need active management. And not only have the ETFs underperformed the major indices, they've actually underperformed the median high-yield manager as well, if you're looking at what their performance has been. You said that we're setting up for a strong 2019. What kind of returns are you expecting? Well, you know, a strong 19, let's recognize, you know, we're, we're talking about that in the context of what will still be a marketplace where we're going to have headwinds from the Fed. So I think the expectations for a December rate rise from the Fed is pretty much locked in. And I think the markets are already adjusted for that. I still think there will be several, whether it's three or four in 2019, we'll have to see. I think that the comments that are coming out today that the Fed may be slowing down in the spring or pulling back may be a little too optimistic. But I think if we look at high yield, it can certainly have a mid-single-digit return. And if the Five, Fed had- six percent. Yeah. And if we have headwinds from the Fed, that means investment grade's probably going to lose money. 
thanks very much for being with us. Pleasure. Ken Monahan, director of a global high yield for Amundi Pioneer, helping to manage more than $90 billion, based in Durham, North Carolina, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thanks very much for being here. I will just say, Pim, that today it does look like other people seem to agree with Ken, because if you look at credit default swaps, that there is clearly a bid here. In other words, the perceived risk in high-yield credit is declining today in tandem with the gains that we're seeing in stock markets. So it does seem to be a little bit of a reprieve from the super risk-off feeling that we had yesterday. Uh, It'll be interesting to see whether that continues, though. Right, indeed. Apple's largest iPhone assembly partner, Foxconn, plans to reduce expenses by nearly $3 billion in 2019 as it faces, quote, a very difficult and competitive year. Here to tell us more about Apple, its supply chain, and the future is none other than John Butler, our senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. John Butler, what's happening to the new iPhone supply chain. Morning, Pim. Well, I I think what's happening is these suppliers are adjusting to the new reality for Apple, which is they are going to keep driving, hopefully, revenue gains and revenue growth through price, not volume. In fact, it it was interesting because IDC, which gives us great data on the whole market, Uh, came out with Q3 numbers, and globally, the smartphone market shipments uh, were down almost 6% year-on-year. So that's sort of the new reality for the supply chain for not just Apple suppliers. I know Samsung, for example, has been struggling for unit growth as well. So I think that's what we're seeing. John, if this is something that everyone has known, that Apple plans to generate uh, the increase in growth in revenues from higher prices, why have Apple shares responded so badly to the ongoing bits of information that its suppliers are, are kind of struggling right now? Well, it sort of begs the question, you know, did Apple expect stronger sales of the new phones, particularly the 10R, which released in late October? It's a low co- it's a great phone. It is a low-cost version of the iPhone 10. It has an LCD screen, so if you can live with that, you're getting all the other features of the 10. And I think that Apple and everyone had high hopes for that. The early reports are it's not selling well. They're just anecdotal reports. It's it's tough to really tell whether that's true or not. I personally think the game begins on Black Friday um, because the holiday selling season is so big for smartphones. But... You know, it's tough to say. I mean, the supply chain are are semiconductor manufacturers. They tend to be very cyclical, right? They expand capacity until suddenly the market turns down, and then there's overcapacity, pressure on pricing, and and they need to cut back on personnel and and facilities. So I think we're seeing that right now. But I'll say this, Lisa, Apple does come up against very tough comps beginning next year, too. So they're going to hit what I'll call a transitional period with iPhone growth, or at least that's my expectation. John Butler, I'm sure you've read the reports about Apple working on electronic medical records for U.S. veterans. What does that tell you about Apple's future strategy? 
So that speaks to the strategy of growing services to a point where it can pick up any slack in iPhone sales. And services has been a great area for them. Everyone knows about Apple Care and, and Apple Music. Those are well-known consumer services, but they're also doing a very good job in healthcare. They're pushing on fitness very hard. Uh, they're doing a lot in medical records. I'll believe it when I see it, Pim, by the way. <laughs> medical records are one of those areas, you know, it, that privacy is such a big issue. It's been very difficult for the world to get to a common platform and, frankly, for you and I to access our own medical records. So hopefully Apple can push through that the, all the regulatory mess to get there, but that's the end game. John, and I think it'll be a big market when they get there. John, just real quick here, do you think that the sell-off in Apple shares over the past few weeks has been overblown? I think people are looking ahead and seeing a slower growth environment. What the right number is is tough to say, but I think that's what you're seeing is a response, a growing realization that iPhone really is coming up against tough comps. Yeah. And um, we don't have any new hardware innovations yet. I think 5G phones and flexible smartphone screens are going to drive that next cycle. Yeah but it's not coming next quarter. John Butler, thank you so much for being with us. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful turkey day. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Apple shares rebounding a little bit today after a bunch of brutal days. Uh, the NASDAQ uh, down uh, quite a bit. Apple shares up at this point about nine-tenths of 1%. It's been a rough couple months for equity traders and, frankly, for anyone who deals in risk. And the big question is, why? Does this have to do with expectations for slowing growth and a possible recession in the near term? Joining us now to discuss, Marvin Lowe, global macro strategist at State Street uh, in Boston. Marvin, thank you so much for being with us. So what's your view? I mean, do you think that all of a sudden traders are suddenly waking up to the realization that there could potentially be a downturn in the near future? Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely um, certainly made its way into the narrative. And uh, data kind of supports um, people being a bit more concerned. You know, certainly the rebound in some of the global economic uh, data that we expected after the summer hasn't really come uh, our way. And then uh, most recently, there has been a slowing of um, U.S. data, which, while expected, is still, you know, something that people might not have um, anticipated, given how strong data had been um, going into the, uh, the fall. Marvin, uh, is the Federal Reserve still going to raise interest rates uh, in December and then four times in 2019? Yeah, December's December's the easy part of the equation. Yeah, I, I think that they will. I think that there's a very high uh, threshold for them to change their mind on that, and I really don't see that happening. Uh, going forward, I do think that they're committed for at least one or two more. I know there's been a little bit of um, back and forth in terms of how committed they are in 2019, uh, but the data is still there for them to continue along the path. You know, whether we get to the four or five that they're talking about, you know, late 19, early 2020, I think that's really where the, uh, the question uh, starts to uh, emerge. So, Marvin, what do you think the Fed would have to see to slow down? You know what? I think that uh, we would need to really see data kind of come in. I think that we would need to see uh, the jobs market really start, uh, start to... Um, uh, peak, if you will, um, uh, you know, decreases in the unemployment rate would have to uh, would have to slow up. Um, but you know, short of that, they are they are looking at uh, an economy which is still at or you know slightly above trend going into next year. 
Marvin, earlier today we had a discussion about high-yield debt. We were speaking to Ken Monahan of Amundi Pioneer. He was bullish on high-yield. Do you see any problems with investing in high-yield debt, given that we may be turning in the interest rate cycle? Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, anywhere near as optimistic on high yield uh, in particular. I think that, you know, certainly we are talking about a recession. I think the way you see asset classes behave, they're starting to show concern about when that recession is going to occur. I think that there are, you know, certain aspects of high yield that are very different now than they were before the crisis also that give me a concern. Some of it coming from the investment grade space in terms of how large the triple B part of the market is, but also how illiquid and how um, we've kind of changed uh, the way high yield is, is traded. It kind of will make for volatility and, and will make for a challenge once we do get to that turn. So in this period of time, what do you think is the riskiest asset class? Asset class? Um, you know what? I'm going to say I'm going to say that you know some of the corporate um, credit parts of the market uh, do do uh, frighten me a bit. You know they have not certainly sold off as much as a lot of the other asset classes, so there is a bit of catching up to do. Are you but, talking you know, about the, high yield or investment grade? You know, probably more probably more high yield uh, at the moment, but you know, certainly investment grade and you know, blindly just buying the index is um, is wrought with a lot of triple Bs these days. So you know, really understanding those market dynamics are are very important. How do you understand the market dynamics of what is going on in the European Union, specifically in Italy, and will that affect interest rates in the United States? You know what? At the moment, I think that. Um, it would have a, a minimal effect at, at this point. You know, certainly longer term, there are a lot of questions as to how the EU is going to deal with Italy. You know, certainly all of the problems with regard to the amount of debt remains. Uh, but in terms of it uh, producing volatility and a catalyst for uh, increased volatility, I think I think the uh, markets and investors are correctly looking beyond maybe uh, the certain headlines that we're seeing over the last couple of weeks. All right. So given the fact that we're probably going to see increased volatility and you think that there is still a lot of risk in the lowest rated credit, what do you expect? When do you expect we're actually going to get a downturn? I mean, right now, very few people are saying it's going to be the next six to 12 months. Yeah, you know, um, certainly, certainly the next six months looks like it's going to be okay, uh, you know, and, you know, put that in the perspective of certainly where we were, you know, if we're talking about two, two and a half percent growth versus the three and a half to four percent, it's not going to feel that great, but it still is trend or above trend. Um, I do think that from the perspective of liquidity um, coming out of the market, whether it's uh, the ECB's position and or the Fed's continuing hiking and, and, and reducing their balance sheet, we're going to see kind of that market volatility from, um, an economic perspective, however, you know it is it is a two H going into twenty twenty type of um, type of discussion for me. Marvin, what do you make of companies that have either pulled or postponed their initial public offerings because of market volatility? And I'm thinking about twenty nineteen and the possibility of an Uber IPO. Do you think those things are off the table now? You know what? Um, no, I, I don't think so. You know, particularly when you talk about uh, companies that um, have as large of a cachet um, as you describe. Remember, uh, there is always a valuation. It's not as if these business models are worth zero and we're trying to sell it from a hundred. You know, certainly we've gone through that. Um, you know, in the in the early two thousands, by the time companies come to market. They generally have a much uh, more developed business model that people understand, and we've kind of seen that with Spotify. You know, certainly Uber. Everybody, everybody knows Uber. So there's a value to that. Whether or not the valuations are what um, the sellers want, now that's a different story. 
So we've seen a number of big analysts say it is the time to start adding to cash allocations. Do you agree? And how much higher should cash be uh, than over the past few years, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, whether it's a function of kind of um, anticipating the volatility and or keeping some powder dry cash does feel like um, it's, it's a decent place to get into. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have an asset allocation. Uh, it, certainly, it is a larger percentage than it was over the last few years when things were, you know, much easier to see from a, from a risk-taking perspective. Marvin, do you sense that there is a dollar shortage outside of the United States? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, and, you know, kind of as we get into year end, I think that um, that's going to play for the traders in terms of how they want to position it. Um, the dollar remains, um, you know, in demand. Um, we kind of see it uh, coming from the emerging markets as well as other areas where, you know, for the most part, for the most part, our markets are, are the most stable. So, yeah, that, 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 that continues. You know, ironically, um, whether or not we get um, much appreciation in the dollar, given everything else that's going on, is, is a pretty active debate in the market right now. Thank you very much for spending time with us uh, today. Marvin Lowe is global macro strategist for State Street, joining us from our Boston studios, talking about interest rates, the European Union, Italy, contagion, yeah. as well as high-yield debt. What do you think the main topic of discussion is going to be this year at Thanksgiving tables across the country? Uh, don't eat the romaine lettuce. <laughs> Indeed. Well, last year was Bitcoin, right? So this year... You know, Bitcoin is 10 years old this year. Well, how's it doing? Not, not so hot. Not so no, but well. it'll be interesting to see uh, whether there are discussions about markets. You know, I know certainly uh, my own family has been asking me, what does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah. Well, hopefully you won't open your statements for the month. Yeah. Yet. Le- leave, it till, leave it till after to, the pumpkin pie. Yeah. Leave it till the end of November. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.